There was once a young monk who was in his first year of seminary. And he wasn't a particularly gifted person in the area of public speaking. He had many gifts in many areas, but speaking terrified him. And it was his term rapidly approaching where he had to actually share the message for Mass that week. And as the day comes closer and closer, he's finding himself increasingly more agitated and nervous. And he's simply, simply overwhelmed. Comes to that morning, he climbs the stairs to the stage, stands behind the pulpit, and he asks the congregation, frightened and intimidated, is there anyone here who knows what I'm about to say? Not one hand went up. And the young monk timidly admitted well, I don't know either. <laughs> and promptly dismissed them with Dominus Fabiscum, the Lord be with you. Of course, that didn't cut it. He was hauled into the seminary's main office, and the father reprimanded him and said, you should have been more prepared, and you are going to share at the next Mass. The week approaches, he gets to the stairs, once again climbing, shaking. And then with a little bit of bravery, he asks the same question. Do any of you know what I'm about to say? You see, they had his number, and everyone put up their hand. <laughs> and this monk says, well, seeing as how you know, I don't need to preach. <laughs> Dominus Fabiscum, the Lord be with you. Week three. Now he's in a little bit of trouble. See, it turns out this very timid monk had a little bit of a cocky streak to him. And he's been told very clearly, you will preach the sermon. Week three climbs the stairs, stands behind the pulpit, and to the shock of everyone, he asks the same question once again. Is there anyone here who knows what I am about to say? You see, they had his number. Half the brothers put up their hands, and half kept their hands down. And so the monk turns to them and says, well, those who know, tell those who don't. <laughs> Dominic Vibiscum, the Lord be with you. Is there anyone here this morning who knows what I am about to say? <laughs> God be with you. I think sometimes... I've felt like that young monk, terrified of what to say, 
when it sometimes feels like in our world, which is being turned upside down, the right words don't even work. I, I heard this week that you can't reason someone out of something they didn't reason themselves into in the first place. You see, we're a world that is running on emotion. And often we find ourselves like that monk standing in front of people who are looking for a word and we don't know what to say. Last week we spoke about mission and what does it mean to live a faithful life? But I ask myself, what does it mean to live a faithful life in a world that is increasingly fragmented and insists on pulling itself apart and seems to be moving more and more and more towards hostility? I think this young monk is on to something. Those who know are to share with those who don't. This morning we are beginning a new series and we're going to be considering what it means to be a people who worship. We're going to look at the power of worship. We're going to look at how worship forms us, shapes us, maybe we'd state even better, reforms us because we live in a world that is constantly pressing us in different ways. A world where we stand in front shaking in our boots, not really knowing what to say. Worship, we find ourselves in a moment of reformation where faith is born or renewed, not in the ways of the world, not even in church traditions, but in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who draws us into relationship. We could say that worship boiled down to its very essence is about a pattern of pursuit. First, we pursue a person when we worship. It's the pursuit of Jesus. It is about relationship, commitment, a deep and abiding love that we receive and that we share with others. And it is the world's very best love story. And God has so graciously placed us in the heart of that story. Dominus Vobiscum. The Lord be with you. As he draws us deeper and deeper and deeper into relationship with him. Worship is a pursuit of practice where we look at this as a ministry. And it's a priestly ministry that each and every one of us who are disciples of Jesus participate in and participate with. And it serves to remind us that it involves duty and purity. Two incredibly unpopular topics in today's world. We don't want to be bound and we don't want to be pure. And worship draws us in to live life Counterculturally. And worship shapes our perspective because worship is about kingship. And no, we didn't talk before Kevin prayed. 
We serve a king. And it's a reformation of our lives where our lordship shifts from the world and from ourselves to the king of kings and Lord of Lords, where every aspect of our lives, every dot and every tittle of the contract that is me comes under the power and rule and lordship of our risen Savior. It is person, practice, and perspective. Worship is reshaping our love, reshaping our actions, and even reshaping our loyalties. I love how Pastor Jack Hayford describes this. Worship is convened to serve God with our praise and to serve people's need with his sufficiency. We could even say that worship is for people. See, we serve God, we praise God. But God calls us into worship because he knows that's how we are formed. Worship is to be to God and for humanity. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism Catechism of 1647 states, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I don't know about you, but forever sounds like a long time. Enjoyment. Enjoyment forever. I don't know what's happening in your life this week, whether you've had wonderful news or you're struggling. But see, worship is about reminding ourselves that we are destined to something amazing an eternity of enjoyment. So what do we mean when we talk about worship? The book of Acts, Jesus commands his disciples to go, birth the mission, the church is launched, They're in the upper room. The Holy Spirit descends. They're radically transformed. They're up there worshiping. And as a result of that reformation, they go out and they begin to preach the gospel. And then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Can you imagine having to buy chairs for 3,000 people, Gwen? Wouldn't that be amazing? Man, I'd love to be able to preach and have 3,000 people suddenly come to Christ. How awesome that would be. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, 
and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So here we have this picture of what it means to be a worshiping church. If we unpack it, we see these five central core aspects of worship. First, it was a learning church. It was a sharing church, and it shared both word and deed and resources as well. It was a praying church. It was a gathered church, and it was a praising church. A worshiping church is a learning church. A worshiping church takes a high view of Scripture and the importance of learning those Scriptures and living life as outlined in God's Word, the Bible. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves. It wasn't forced. It wasn't coerced. It wasn't a result of shame. They wanted to know God's word, and they made themselves available to learn. They set things aside, and they made that a priority in their lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we should take a low view of other forms of learning. Not at all. If I want to be a nurse, I need to study nursing. If I want to be a teacher, I need to study teaching. If I want to be an engineer, I have to study something I can't possibly understand, but my son knows about, that he tells me will turn him into an engineer one day. We need to study, and it's clearly important. And as followers of Jesus Christ, if we want to be devoted to our Lord, we need to study. It needs to become a priority for us. You need to know what we believe. Peter said, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone ask, asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. See, there's this desire in us to know more when God plants himself right in the center of us. We live in a world based bases opinions on emotion and not on reason. And I think that's a critical piece for a discipling, worshiping church is to root our opinions in God's word. A worshiping church is a sharing church, word and deed. The image here is of deep caring. Meals were shared, resources were shared. The Lord's Supper became part of their routine and they visited one another's homes. And it was a form of sharing centered on Jesus that flowed outward towards community. When we are reformed by worship, our grip on the things of this world begin to relax. And we begin to see the good things that God has given us as things to be shared. Both the good news of this scripture that we so desire to know more deeply and in our deeds, which includes the way we share our stuff. We become a people less concerned about our standard of living. 
A worshiping church is a praying church. And prayer shapes us. It shapes our worldview. In the worship, we pray. We pray in personal prayers. As we lift up to God in the quiet times, along with Jesus, the things that are deeply, deeply held within, good and bad, struggles and joy, as we share them with our Lord. And we do so again in corporate prayer, where we lift up our petitions and our needs. And as we pray, something begins to change. We begin to pray differently. We begin to pray for the needs of others as we lose that grip on our own selves. We start praying for justice. We start praying for reconciliation. And then with absolute audaciousness, we begin to pray for our enemies. The passage tells us that a deep sense of awe came over them. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. When we pray, we are inviting that deep sense of awe. We are inviting the miraculous. We are inviting healing, restored relationships. We are inviting transformation in ourselves and in others as we hold up before God the things we cannot handle ourselves, which frankly is more than what we actually think we can handle. Probably the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my life was when I think I've got it and I haven't given it to God. A worshiping church is a gathered church. And the word here is koinonia. Luke uses this to mean fellowship. And the idea here is sharing it, denotes intimacy and togetherness, sharing of our resources and sharing of our time, and the sharing of our lives. One period in my life, I was studying in seminary in Manila, and it was a global discipleship because we were from about 12 different countries in my program. And it, so it crossed boundaries, ethnic, economic, even ideological boundaries, as many of us came from different denominations. They called us together, and they gathered us in what they called koinonia groups. And the intention was that together when we worshipped, those boundaries, those differences would begin to blend. And we would suddenly, instead of seeing them as the stranger, we would see them as brothers and sisters. But you see, it seems to me gathering is a challenge in our day. And I don't know why. And I find it interesting to see And I think it's also a clue that this same challenge existed for the early church. Author of Hebrews says, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I take great comfort. The pastors of the first churches had the same struggles that we do today. And then I have great concern that after 2,000 years, we seem not to have learned much. But what am I talking about here? 
because our world has changed. You see, Peter, when he was preaching and these 3,000 people came to know Christ, were baptized and were part of the church, they didn't have the internet. So the whole idea of gathering looked very different back then than it does today. And I have said again and again and again, I have zero objections to worshiping online. So if you're watching online right now, this is not a rebuke of you, and I'm not trying to shame you into getting in the doors, although we're going to have really nice chairs. (laughs) But it is an encouragement to ensure that if you're watching online, for whatever reason, make sure you're connecting to the body of Christ. Because worship isn't just what we do here on Sunday morning. Worship is what we do whenever we are gathered. Scripture tells us where two or more are gathered in the name of Christ, there he is also, and you become the church. There's much pulling us away from each other, but there are seasons in our lives where we are prevented from gathering on Sunday morning, so please hear me, this is not a guilt trip. But... The passage says the believers devoted themselves, devoted themselves also to fellowship. And then they gathered daily for some in the temple and regularly in homes. And no, I'm not about to announce that we're launching daily services different times in different places. But we may not be able to gather together always, but it's important for our own spiritual health that we do have spiritual companionship and fellowship with other believers. And then, for some weird reason which I don't understand, we're supposed to do potluck. (laughs) It's right there. They broke bread together. I don't know why, and potluck's kind of a weird thing to me. Potluck for me is I remember those jelly salads with vegetables in them that my mom used to make. I haven't forgiven her for that. I'm glad she's not here to hear me say that. But potlucks are spiritual discipline. Isn't that awesome? You see, it's we gather, we break bread together, and we're saying we love you enough to share. So when we come here next weekend, let's feast together. And of course, a worshiping church is a praising church. Now often when we say worship, we immediately think singing. But when we sing, we are doing a part of worship, not in its whole. And as a gathered people, we are called to be a people of praise, declaring our gratitude and our delight in the life and acts of Jesus. And so we sing. And we sing because Scripture tells us to sing. Psalms 96 says, Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Something about singing References to song and singing is said to appear in Scripture some 400 times. I confess I have not actually counted. But 50 of those references are commands. We're commanded to sing. 
Something about raising our voices in community before God shapes us. It's why it's so important. It's why the worship team works so hard week after week after week to bring to you praise. It's an act of obedience on their part so that you can perform an act of obedience to God. Honestly, it's no wonder we have the worship wars. If I was the enemy of God and I was trying to disrupt all of you from being formed by Him, I would be trying to mess with worship. I would be trying to mess with singing and get you fighting about what kind of song should be sung. Because now your eyes are no longer on Jesus, they're on yourselves. Because when we sing, we're declaring our deepest love for the Creator. So how do we live this story? Today I want to invite you into some self-reflection. I want you to ask yourself a simple question. How am I doing? How is my worship? How are we doing? How is our worship? I make no assumptions, but in myself, I do see areas where I'm doing well and others where I seem to be suffering a little bit of spiritual malnutrition. I call it my plate spinning crisis, where I've got a bunch of plates spinning, and at any given moment, I'm always in danger of one of them slowing down and falling. And so it feels like I'm rushing around trying to spin this plate and trying to spin this plate, and it always feels like I'm a little bit out of control. Can you relate to that? Some heads nodding. Some of them are my staff. I don't believe this is what Jesus meant. I don't believe that Jesus meant for us to come and be so overwhelmed and so busy and so stressed out and worship added to the pressures that, oh Lord, I'm not praying properly and oh, I'm not reading my Bible enough and oh my gosh, I hate worship singing. I don't, but you know, I've heard that amongst you. Some of you arrive at the last song okay. But see, Jesus promised life, abundant life. He says in John 10.10, the thief's, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So none of this is meant to make you feel shamed or guilty. Because that's not satisfying, and that doesn't feel like life to me. My standing up here and yelling at you and chastising you and telling you to do better doesn't feel like a life-giving morning at community church. So that's not what I'm doing. So what do we do if we find ourselves with a few plates almost ready to crash to the ground? Do we go the way of that young monk and try to avoid the issue altogether? Dominus Vibiscum, Lord be with you. Get out. <laughs> I remember when I was in university, 
My mom was concerned about my diet. I think she was worried I'd get scurvy because all she ever saw me eating was craft dinner. It had the four food groups. But she actually encouraged me to eat the actual four food groups because color, uh, that coloring is not a food group apparently. And I objected, as most 22-year-old young men would do. How could I manage to eat all four food groups when I was so busy or lazy? But she encouraged me to reconsider what healthy eating, healthy eating could look like. All of it, yes, a balanced diet, but not necessarily all at once for every meal. All four food groups balanced through the day or through the week. And you know what? I didn't get scurvy. Thanks, Mom. You see, life is not meant to be all at once all the time. There are seasons in our life where there's something I need to focus on. There are times where I realize my diet is lacking in this area. And so when you're doing this self-reflection, I encourage you, ask yourself, what is lacking in my spiritual diet? Where is the Holy Spirit inviting each of us to sit and eat and grow and to allow worship to shape us into the person Jesus made us to be and show us why he made worship for us? It's a simple question. And yet it is a a profound question. And over the next four weeks, we will be continuing this pursuit to learn together, to see what it looks like in our times and in our lives to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How many of you know what I'm going to say? Well, neither do I. (laughs) Dominus Viviscum. Lord, thank you for this incredibly rich diet that you've given us. Lord, I pray this morning that without condemnation, without shame, without fear, you would draw our attention to those places in our lives where we are spiritually malnourished. Lord, are we in your word? Are we praying? Are we sharing our resources? Are we gathering? Lord, are we praising you? Lord, I encourage each of us here, to ask that question with sincerity. And then, Lord, over the coming weeks, grab a napkin and a fork and start feasting on this wonderful meal called worship so that we can be reformed, so that we can be the ones who know what is being said and have the ability to share it with those who don't.
Dominus Fabiscum. May the Lord be with us. Amen.